continuing our series, What's Your Next Step? What we're talking about in this series is that following Jesus uh, is a mission of a lifetime. We don't always talk about it that way. Maybe we don't always think about it that way. But it should be an adventure. We're always growing, always learning, always, as we mentioned last week, exploring, asking questions. Because there's some who may have explored about faith in Jesus, and maybe they liked what they found, but they didn't go any further with that. But this mission of a lifetime is to be marked with exploring in that you are always learning. You're always growing. You're always developing. In fact, your worldview has always changed to be more and more in line with the Lord. But some may have just tasted a little bit about Jesus and they're content to stay right there. But when you decide to follow Jesus, it's not that we're to be passive. It's not that we're just to, to lay back and, and just be a spectator. We should fully engage. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And we understand the process that happens with the Christian life. And at some point, we learned about Jesus. We learned the gospel. Maybe for you, you grew up in a Christian home and you heard it all your life. Or maybe you were in a relationship with somebody dating. And through them, you learned about this Jesus. Heard about it before, but maybe then you really came to know. Or maybe it's a neighbor or a friend at work. Maybe you just heard something on TV or radio, listened to a podcast, maybe read a book, and you learned about Jesus. But when Jesus welcomes us in, when we follow Him, again, not to be a spectator, not to be passive. And that's our next step today. We're talking about what it means to engage. To go not just from exploring to engaging. And I want us to look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42, as our text for this lesson. And really what we're going to do in our, our study today is just kind of walk through this passage familiar to most, if not all of us, and see what it looked like for them. When they decided to follow Jesus, what did they do? What was their response? How, how was it characterized? Because when Peter preached the good news at Pentecost, the response was overwhelming. You remember, so many decided to give their life to the Lord, to follow Jesus, and were baptized. Over 3,000 new believers. But then look in verse 42. It tells us, what they were devoted to. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So after their decision, after their conversion, this was their life. This was their lifestyle. This is what they engaged in. It didn't end with baptism and just kind of wait around until the Lord comes back. This is what their life looked like. Notice that word at the very beginning, devoted. That word in the original language means to continue to do something with intense effort. They were devoted. We might say dedicated. In other words, we know what that word means. David Stern wrote the, New, uh, the Jewish New Testament commentary. And that resource has become just a go-to for me. When I want to learn something about the Bible, what it says there, because I want to know what it meant to the original audience. How did they hear it? When they read these words, when they heard the words, what was the background? How did they respond? What did it mean to them? Because that helps to understand. Now, all of us should have a good Bible translation. And sometimes we want a good word-for-word -word Bible translation. That can be very exact. But even if you have the best word-for-word -word translation, sometimes you can miss some of the phrases, some of the idioms that appear in every language. And I'll give you an example of that. Just this week, we were talking around the office. If you don't know, Alex Quintero speaks amazing English. 
he's great. In fact, he also understands Southern English. And we have a good time with that. And so we were talking about that some this week, and, and somebody commented and said, well, they don't speak a lick of Spanish. And Alex looked at us and says, what is a lick of Spanish? And we all kind of laughed at that because we knew what they meant, and he was just kind of calling us out on our words use like that. And another one that we talked about, and he laughed the first time he heard someone say, I'm fixing to go. And he said, well, are you fixing something or are you going somewhere? But you and I say fixing to go, and we know exactly what that means. Well, I made the comment. I said, if I said fixing to go to my English teacher when I was in high school, she would have cleaned my plow. And then someone says, well, what does clean your plow mean? <laughs> well, you know what it means. But that kind of explains. You know, we have all these little sayings, idioms. We know what they mean. But they don't mean what we say. Well, the same is true in the original language from time to time. And so David Stern does a good job of, of taking those idioms that you and I may not catch and explaining how did that original Jewish audience hear it. Because this verse in Acts 2.42, we're talking about Jewish Christians. These are the first ones to give their life to Jesus, which means everything's new to them. None of them grew up thinking this way. It was all a challenge for them. And so what we learn here in Acts chapter 2 is these early Christians went past exploring, asking questions, what must I do to be saved? And they engaged. So they rallied around four different ways, and we see that in the verse. And I want this to kind of be our outline. And again, you're familiar with it. You may already have it underlined in your Bible. But the first one is this, and that is Scripture. In Acts 2, 42, it says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. That was the actual word there because that's what they had. The apostles' teaching. It was the teaching that Jesus had taught them. And so the apostles were teaching them. They didn't have the New Testament completed at the time of Acts 2, 42. So what they had were what the apostles were teaching them. The teaching of the apostles, or the apostles' doctrine, some versions say. I put this on the screen. I want to make sure you get this. Being an engaged follower of Jesus means that you are an active student of God's Word. But at the same time, I want to be realistic about this and not get the, the wrong idea. Not every passage in the Bible is going to knock your socks off. See, that's another one of those words. That you know what I mean by that. You may be reading in a part of the Bible and you think, this doesn't do anything for me. This is not helping me. And I would say, well, just choose another part of the Bible to study. If you get bogged down in the book of Leviticus or maybe Numbers, then go to another part of Scripture. I mean, who can read through the book of Genesis and say, that's boring? Or if you want to really explore the amazing love of God, go and read the book of Hosea. That will blow your socks off. How God loves us so much. Or go to the New Testament and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All the Gospels even compare. Which one left this part out? Which one added this one? I wonder why they did that. And watch Jesus learn from Him. Or even read through the book of Acts. Go from chapter to chapter and see how the church grows, how the church is on fire, and how blessed that the numbers grow and grow and grow. That will excite you. But each of us need to be committed, engaged, and studying God's Word so maybe that's your next step. That's what I need to do. Think for what, what is your next step. Maybe for you, you need to be active in studying God's Word. Sometimes you do that by yourself. But sometimes 
It's best done with other people. The Bible says in Proverbs 27, is iron sharpens iron. So the first step is Scripture. The second one is fellowship. We see this also in Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now notice, fellowship is, is something you can't do by yourself. Following Jesus, deciding to become a Christian is a personal decision. But following Jesus is not meant to be done alone. We're to have each other, to support each other. So just like the early church, we should also be devoted to fellowship. Sometimes we talk about a mealtime or a gathering like somehow that's less spiritual than these other things. I think Acts 2.42 tells us it's just as spiritual, just as needed. We need help. We need somebody to walk alongside us. We need people to encourage us, others to teach us, some people to help us along. And they need you too. We need each other. And I see Jesus as setting the example of this. Think about the way He dealt with people. Not everybody was as close as others. Remember that? How He had that inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John, who seemed to be at everything, anything, it was, except for when Jesus was alone. Peter, James, and John are just right there, that close three. But then there's also the twelve that Jesus poured into in an intense way. He could pour into that 12 in ways he couldn't to the, the larger crowd. But you keep reading in the Gospels and you also find that there was a time where there were 70. Remember that number? And then the number 120. And things happen in these larger groups that don't happen in the smaller groups, but they're all important. And they're all good. And I think even today, there's a practical takeaway for this, a practical application. I don't know that this is the best way to explain it, but I put this on the screen. I want you to see three circles. I want you to think of the, the biggest circle as worship. When we gather with crowds of hundreds in this room, and on March 12th, it'll be even more in this room, and there's something about when everybody's together, there's something special there. There's something inspirational there with a large group of people. You walk into that and you realize, I'm not alone. I'm not the only one. The singing's better when the crowd is big. And there's more people like me, the bigger the crowd is. And it just kind of helps in so many ways. Some people think of this church as being huge, so big that it's uncomfortable, so big that it's easy to get lost in. And maybe to some degree, there's some truth to that. But I would also say, there's some incredible strength in numbers. You're not alone. When you show up, others are going to be there. A bunch of others are going to be there. And our efforts collectively is so much stronger than any of us individually. And you know what is also true? You have been in situations where you go into a large crowd of Christians and sometimes it's just overwhelmingly wonderful. Have you ever been in a, in a conference or a seminar when the room is just packed and there's thousands? I thought about this two weeks ago. Fried Hardman were, were having their lectures and, and someone would comment about that. How awesome it is to go into that big Lloyd Auditorium and be overwhelmed by thousands just singing with all they've got. Something inspirational about that. This very weekend, 40 of our young people and their chaperones are in the mountains at a convention center with thousands. You walk into something like, you've been there, and there's something inspirational about that. There's something special about that. That's worship when we're all together. And we know what that means. But if you're engagement level stops with this. 
in this room, just Sunday morning worship, I would say you are shortchanging yourself. There's another level of engagement to consider, and that's the next circle. Look on the screen here. It's Bible classes, or maybe your home Bible study groups, or maybe a ladies' study group, where the number is small. Not quite everybody, but enough to have a good discussion group, a learn together. People know your name. Everybody in there maybe knows your name. They know when you're not there kind of size. Do you know what I mean? And in these kind of settings, for most of us, that's when the best learning happens. The instruction. Where we can share the Scripture with each other. Help hold each other accountable. But there's another circle I want to challenge you to engage in. And I don't know if this is the best way to word it, but your closest friends, your closest Christian friends, Maybe your spouse if you're married. It may be your, your brother or sister. Just some, some good friends. But just that two or three, maybe four or five. That you can share anything with them. You can share your doubts. You can ask your questions. And you know if you start stepping aside, they're going to love you enough. Your relationship is strong enough. They're going to pull you back. They love you that much. That inner circle. At its core, what we're talking about is fellowship. There's different levels. We know that. Not everybody's on the same level. I think each of us would benefit to having each of these, just as we see Jesus had different levels of fellowship and involvement. Fellowship is a key ingredient to get involved, to get engaged. Let me share a quote by Ann Ortland. She wrote a book, Up With Worship. She said, The average church is too much like a bag of marbles. We scratch against each other and we make a little noise. We don't really affect each other very much. But the church should be much more like a bag of grapes that mesh together producing a sweet-tasting wine because of the interaction. Something else that happens when we come together. Don't think of fellowship as just happening in a big circle. Sometimes, again, it could be the closest friend. Let me give you an example of how fellowship goes beyond just a building or beyond just the, the, the fellowship hall or a gym or another space. Look at Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18, look at verse 24. Again, early in the New Testament church. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he only knew of the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explain to him the way of God more adequately. We don't know a lot about Apollos, but we know he was a great preacher. And that although he knew about Jesus and taught correctly about that, he was limited on his knowledge of baptism. He only knew of John's baptism. He didn't know what Peter had told this whole crowd on the day of Pentecost about what Jesus taught about baptism. So the Bible says they explained to Apollos, and look at that phrase there, the way of God more adequately. That's the NIV. You might remember the King James says the way more perfectly. The ESV says more accurately. Lovingly, they came alongside him and taught him what he didn't yet know. And Apollos responds favorably to this, accepts their teaching, and goes on to continue to preach the gospel throughout Greece. Now, I think one of the reasons why Aquila and Priscilla were successful in this, and the reason why Apollos received it well, was where and how they taught him. They didn't call him out publicly. There was no shaming here. 
There's no, you're the enemy because you got this wrong. They invited him into their home. When you invite somebody into your home, that tells them, I care about you. They wanted to make sure Apollos understood. It wasn't approving who was wrong. It was helping each other to understand what is right. See, biblical fellowship and Scripture go hand in hand. There may be times where the best teaching happens in this room. It may be the best teaching happens across your kitchen table or on your sofa. These two are so meshed together. Well, look at the third one. Just go into the verse, Acts 2, 42. It says, next, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. So if you fill in the blank, it's worship. That's what we're talking about here. Because again, that breaking of bread was an idiom that could be used both ways. And we understand it because it's used both ways in Scripture. There's a time when it literally means breaking of bread, like eating a meal together. But it was also used sometimes in Scripture to talk about communion, the Lord's Supper, the breaking of the bread. Now, notice there, if you're looking at your Bibles, where it mentions the word the. And this is when we can appreciate the exact Greek language. Because if they say the, the breaking of bread... Think about that. If we said they had a meal together or they had the meal together. The meal means the Lord's Supper, not just any kind of meal. In fact, Richard Stern points out that when they were gathered, they probably had both. Just as in the Passover where they had the meal, but then it became the ceremonial part. But they would do the same thing. There was a breaking of bread and then there's the breaking of bread. But you just kind of back up and look at Acts 2.42, so what's going on? We've already talked about fellowship. That's been stated. So it's not just talking, eating together. They gathered for worship. And a key part of that worship from the very first day was communion, taking the Lord's Supper together. And the Bible talks about that, how they did it regularly and consistently. Acts 20, verse 7, on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, Paul talks about how the Lord directed us to do this. For I received from the Lord that which I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, He took the cup and saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So I want to make sure we get the picture here. Breaking a bread can be any meal that a friend might share, but it also could mean the meal. So it's healthy for the church relationally, and it's also healthy for the church spiritually. They go together. And we weekly worship and take communion. It reminds us of what's most important. We witness a baptism. We remember our own baptism. We're praying for others who need to commit their life to the Lord. We study God's Word and we worship and we realize it's important for me to be here. We need to be devoted to this, just as they were. Now, we can worship God privately. The Bible talks about many times where people did that, and we should. But we also see in Scripture, this is a chance, an opportunity for us to engage collectively as the body of Christ and be encouraged. Being at worship is a way to engage to be put following Jesus first in my life. And it's so easy to want to sleep in if we've had a full weekend. Or if the weather is less than ideal, it's so easy just to, to, just to not make that a priority. 
But here's what I believe. The priority we place on coming together for worship really reveals who or what we worship. It really does help us to see what, what's our priorities. One man did extensive research working on this doctoral project. He wanted to know what causes uh, churches to thrive and to grow. And sometimes that, with that, we think of, well, well, maybe it's a worship style. If we just change this, if we did this, then we'd grow. Or if it's a certain age group or demographic, if we had this, then we would grow. In fact, when he did his research of all kinds of churches, he went to contemporary-type churches, very traditional churches, some that were all young people, some that were blended. But for the churches that were thriving, he said it had nothing to do with ages, it had nothing to do with worship style. This is what he said. If I were to sit in the audience just a couple of minutes before the service starts and close my eyes, I wouldn't have been able to tell you which church I was in. Because there was a common thread with all of them. There was, listen to these words, an incredible sense of expectancy that was almost intoxicating. In other words, people came to worship and they expected it to be all about God. We were going to focus Him. We were going to lift Him up. And regardless of the style or the age, that doesn't matter. In the hearts of all those churches that are thriving, it's because God was first. And anybody who walked in who didn't know much of anything, they could sense that. Even with their eyes closed. And when you come to worship, think about it. It may be a word that is said in the lesson, or maybe a line in a song. Maybe you get to witness the baptism. Maybe for you at the moment, you close your eyes in communion and say, this is His body. This is His blood. He washes me clean. Well, that's a moment of you and God, but we're also doing it together. And that worship becomes something we engage in. Well, here's one more. It's not last. Or at least I should say it's not least. It's prayer. They, they were devoted to prayer. I want you to notice, Richard Stern commented, Chapter 3 opens with Peter and the others going to the temple for the hour of prayer. So they were engaged in the, the Jewish customs still. But what you read here is they went beyond that as Christians. They were devoted to prayer. They were not just simply praying to God. They were praying for God to work in and through them because now they had the indwelling Spirit. And what happens is we see them being devoted to prayer. And then if you take the time just to keep reading in the book of Acts, what you see is chapter after chapter, how they grew and they grew and they grew and the numbers go and they go to the point where they don't even share numbers anymore. And they're devoted to prayer. So engaging, if that's our step, if that's your next step, engaging in prayer may be the litmus test of where you are in this mission of following the Lord. Prayer should be our default mechanism. With each of us personally, in our families, in our relationship as a church, you're talking, let's pray about that. In fact, let's talk right now and pray about that. You're constantly praying about anything, about everything. Nobody's surprised to know you pray because they know you're devoted to prayer just as they were. You worship Him. You thank Him. You praise Him. You petition Him. You plead with Him. Sometimes we make prayer much harder than it has to be. Is that not why we love when we hear the prayer of a child that's so young 
And the words may be out of order, and maybe it might seem a little irreverent, but we know at its core, it's exactly what God wants to hear. It's so sweet. And that's why He tells us to be like the little children. And the Bible talks a lot about the purpose of prayer. But there are also times where the Bible mentions postures of prayer. Several postures. We often talk of teach our kids close their eyes, bow our heads, and we know this as parents. We have them fold their hands together because that keeps them from going where they shouldn't go. But I was reading through the book of Acts this week. I noticed in Acts chapter nine, Peter knelt down before Dorcas, her dead body, and prayed, and she came back to life. And then in Acts chapter twenty, we see the elders of the church at Ephesus saying goodbye to Paul deeply emotional moment, tear-filled. And Luke writes in that chapter how they knelt down and prayed. In Acts chapter 21, Luke writes about the time he and Paul are entire. They kneel and they pray. And one of the traditions that has long since gone is the tradition of having kneeling benches in churches. If you grow up with a kneeling bench in church, Maybe that's one of the traditions we shouldn't have moved past. To kneel in prayer, but not just when we collectively gather, but also privately. We don't talk about kneeling much. Maybe it's being done, we just don't talk about it. But what happened? When's the last time you knelt to pray? I thought about that for myself, so I asked I remember the time. And you know what went with that time of kneeling for me? Desperation. It was a moment of desperation. See, in our America today, our Western civilization, we're not used to being desperate. We don't find ourselves being desperate so much, so we probably are not inclined to kneel and pray. But when you feel desperate, you're not thinking about what anybody else is thinking. And you'll kneel to pray no matter who's watching, not to be seen of them because you know you need God. And being devoted to prayer is just that. You feel dependent on Him. You can't make it without Him. So that conversation of prayer is ongoing. You cannot do it in your own strength, even though everything in our culture tells us in America we can. A number of years ago, in the Rose Parade, Rose Parade, it just stopped. A huge gap happened because one float stopped. Well, that's not supposed to happen, you know. You're supposed to just say one right after another. What's going on? Why did it stop? Well, finally, everybody was looking at the one float that stopped, and then out from under it crawled the driver, and he, and he told the officials he ran out of gas. Ran out of gas. Here's the irony. It was the standard oil company float. <clears throat> let's laugh at them, and let's laugh at us. How many times... Do we run out of gas? We as God's people, as followers of Jesus, have access to the most powerful source of all. When we run out of gas, and we do, we're exhausted, we're short-tempered, we give up, we get frustrated, the list goes on and on. Is that not just that gate, that meter saying, we are not praying to God. We are not leaning on Him. I believe engaging starts and ends with this one. It would be so wise to incorporate prayer 
in all that we do. It's the key. So what's your next step? You're going to hear that next couple of three weeks. What is your next step? Your next step may be to study more about baptism. Study more about salvation. What does it mean to be a child of God? I've heard about it all my life. Am I saved? I'm not sure. Maybe for you the next step is a Bible study. You can do it on your own or maybe if you need help, ask any of us. One of us. We'll be glad to help you with that. Somebody helped us. We want to help you. Or maybe your next step is to be baptized. You're ready. You know. You understand. You know that you are a sinner. And the only way for you to be saved is for those sins to be washed away. And baptism is where you meet the blood of Jesus. Or maybe for you, you need a church. You've been visiting for quite a while now. It's more than just signing on the member or guest line. It's about saying, these are my people. I need them. They need me. I'm in. If that's you and you want to know what that means, just ask any of the elders. We'd glad to sit with you, talk with you, and kind of share with who we are, who you are. And again, if you need more study, that's good. If you're just ready, hey, we're going to announce you, that's good too. It's not a huge test to pass. It's just where are you in your journey? What's your next step? We want to make sure, and I didn't share this, but yesterday the elders and ministers spent the day on a retreat. Huge part of that was praying for all of you. And you hear it from our elders. They want all of you to make it home. When the Lord comes, when it's your time, that you make it home. This invitation song is to encourage you to take whatever step you need to take so that you can make it home. Won't you come as we stand and sing to encourage you?